I'm Steve Fisher. D.C. Fontana was perhaps best known for her work on a number of Star Trek TV series and subsequent novels. Lynn Barker has been a journalist and writer for a number of TV shows. The two friends teamed up to produce a novel of King Arthur's return to a future post-apocalyptic world to help defeat a despotic regime. D.C. didn't live to see the completion of the tale, but Lynn is here to talk about the challenges of getting that book to print, along with the narrator of the audio version, Stacey Lind. And I got frustrated and just decided to do it myself. And it's been a nightmare in some ways because you have to publicize and market your own work, which takes more time away from writing. They're here to introduce Futurist Rex on Life Slices. I'm going to start with Lynn. Lynn, who is Lynn Barker? Oh, boy. I'm a creative writer who has reinvented herself many times. And I'm going to read this off a list because there's too much stuff. I started out writing TV hard news in San Francisco. Then I went to script synopsis and analysis, and then TV and film scripts, film and TV reviews and interviews as an entertainment journalist, and then short stories, magazine articles, and now I'm a novelist. So always writing, but different kinds. So that's why walking down the street, you'll often bump into people because you've got a pen and pad in hand and just writing as you walk. Not quite that bad, no. Just want to make sure. <laughs> what sparked your interest in writing, and specifically sci-fi and fantasy? Well, I read it as a kid. I always I got into Heinlein and Asimov and everything as a young teen, very young teen. And it was what I was good at in school. I sucked in math. I was good in anything written. And then I started writing short story little things for myself And by the time I was uh, about 16, I was in love with Dr. Kildare, which was on TV. So I decided I'm going to write a Dr. Kildare script. I didn't know what they looked like or anything. I just went in there and said, he says this, he says that, and then here's what happens. And I wrote my my not-so-hot, but not-too-bad. I I remember somebody in it had a subdural hematoma, because I'd heard of that on Dr. Kildare. (laughs) So I went ahead and wrote that. And it it just kind of grew from that. And I studied hard hard news in college under Tony Hillerman, a Southwest, wonderful Southwest Navajo, writer of Navajo mysteries. He was a great journalist. And so I went to San Francisco and did news for a while. Not on camera, I wrote news. So you made it up as you went. Uh, You made up all the stories they would report at night. uh, No, no, no. Tried to be true to hard news principles. No, they had to be really happening. Tell me, who was D.C. Fontana? Well, one of my very best friends. That's one thing. A wonderful writer of a lot of genres. People have her stuck in the Star Trek, working with Mr. Spock in classic Star Trek. And those are the people who are her biggest fans. But she wrote Western. She wrote procedurals. She wrote all kinds of dramas and everything for television. She wrote a few screen scripts that got optioned but never got made, regrettably. But she's well, she did a lot of television. Then she was a wonderful friend. She was loyal. If she believed in you, she would go to the, the ropes for you. She would go to the end of the world to help you. So I'm going to cry. Oh, dear. Uh, anyway, uh, we lost her at the end of 2019. And I was, along with David Gerald, the uh, famous science fiction writer, he and I were the two eulogies at her memorial. That lets you know how close I was to her. Well, and just, just for, for full disclosure here, Dorothy was a friend of mine as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
that <laughs> that was a loss that hit us all. Mm-hmm. Why did what led you to decide to write a novel together? There was a very very good artist and graphic novel author named Bud Lewis with two D's. And he did a lot of work in the 80s and I guess a little into the 90s. And he brought Dorothy and I an idea for King Arthur's return, according to the legend that Arthur was only sleeping. He's never really dead. And that when Britain needed him the most, he'd return. And he brought us that and said, I want to turn, I don't want to do a graphic novel, I decided. I want this to be a script. But I'm bringing it to you two because I don't know all that much about scripts. So we got together and we wrote the script. This was in the early, I believe, 80s. We we marketed it and it got good responses. But everybody said, we can't do these. We can't have this creature talking to these people. The effects weren't up to snuff at that time for what we had in this thing. And nobody thought they could do the effects. So we shelled it finally because we kept getting, this is impossible to do. And we heard that Bud had died in the Pacific North, Northwest somewhere in 2014. So we decided, well, let's, let's just turn this into a novel, Dorothy and I. So we started slowly working on it. That gets into the process, if you want to know how we wrote. Absolutely. That was my next question. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let me join It you. actually wasn't my next question, but it is a question I have for okay. you. But, well, but go ahead and talk about it. So what was your process? Well, how I, did I didn't you tell you how together? I met Dorothy either. That was kind of strange. I wrote her a letter, and I, I give a really good letter, evidently. She wrote back. No, we just had, we used the script as a basic outline, and then we changed some things, of course, and fleshed out some things. And she wrote a certain section. I would edit her, I give notes to her. I would write a section and send it to her, give, she'd give me notes. And it went back and forth like that. But before we could finish, she got really involved with her teaching at the American Film Institute. And she didn't have that much time. And so it kind of got stalled. And then she got sick and passed. So I decided... She wanted to do it on finishing this book, so I did. So I know I know what it's like. I have written in partnerships. Mm-hmm. What what was your process for when you disagreed on something? Talk out what what was best for the story, and we tended to agree a lot more. We we have kind of a had kind of a similar writing style, so we would talk out why that didn't work. the The person you were talking, either she or I, would have to defend why do why did I do that? Why do I think this? And then we would, and we would just agree. We never had a fight about it. We would admit that the other person was was uh, right, and it was about equal. I mean, sometimes I won, sometimes she won. If you want to call it a contest, it really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I've written in partnerships. We did have a process for when we disagreed vehemently on something. Usually, we would each make our case. If we couldn't convince the other that our way is the way to go, we came up with a totally different solution. Yeah. Well, we just we, yeah. threw out both of ours and said, okay, let's figure out something totally different that we can both live with. Yeah. Well, we did that. Yeah. Th- there's a couple of things where we did that. And we come up with something that was better than what either one of us originally thought. But we were following a basic outline. Uh, people write in different ways. Some people don't even make an outline. They make a couple of beats or something. But in a novel, I need a freaking outline. I need to know Know the characters, that's another list. What they want, another list. But then you have to know something about how to move along that way, and I need, I need an outline. And if you want to deviate from it, and you're writing with somebody, you talk 
about, listen, this might be better. What do you think? In the future, it's just going to be me. I'm writing the sequel because everybody was asking questions and wanted to see more characters and more about what the characters did and more about different locations and things. So I'm writing that alone, but it is based loosely on two ideas Dorothy and I had for future stories in case this went to a TV series or whatever. So it's loosely based on two ideas that we had. Okay, let's not go in. I, I don't want to go into the sequels no, just no. yet <laughs> because I want you to give a logline for Futurist Rex. What is this book oh, about? Oh my God, I can't give like a two-line thing. It's a post-apocalyptic world way in the future, and King Arthur has been awakened as promised to help lead a rebellion against a really evil techno wizard and her garum guards who are mutants. I can't do a one long line. I'm not pitching TV here. I can't do a one a log line for the I can write it. I can't say it. Uh, there's a there's a also a very strong female lead who is a song sayer and that's the equivalent of a troubadour. We call it a song sayer. She doesn't have any battle skills, but she's feisty as hell and can control a few weapons. She's, she's right in there in the battle. There's going to be a little love triangle in it. it of course, she, Arthur's part of that. So I don't know how to go into it. There's a lot of characters in it. There are a lot of characters, and it's a very fast mm-hmm. read, I should mention. It's only 180. That's how it came out, because I picked type that was too small. So how long should it be? Probably about 250. It's, a, it's about 250. It would be if it were printed on bigger type. So the title, and as you've talked about it, implies that Arthur is the star of the mm-hmm. story. But when I read it, I really felt that he was more of a supporting player and that I s- saw Aliena. Yeah, is yeah, that how you, you. How yeah, you correct. You're one of the few who gets that. I felt Aliena was the star of the story. Well, I've had people think Beige was. No, I don't think Beige was because I don't like the color. <laughs> Way too bland. (laughs) Okay. It is a balance between them, kind of. I didn't want, or Dorothy did not want to write a book that was Arthur's angst at being a stranger in a strange land. That's a lot of think pieces. That's a lot of, oh my God, what is this? I don't know what it was. It wasn't in my time. Why am I here? Can I save this world? He does a little of that because he has to. Merlin is in, in here too. And he does ask Merlin, what the hell happened? What has happened to our world and what's wrong with these people? And there is a scene or two with that in it. So it's not that he doesn't have any any reaction to where he is and what he's woken up to see. It would be a think piece with tons of that. And that's how it's an action adventure, fast read book. And that's what it's supposed to be. And other people have said they want Jar Jar R. Martin tomes with 900 pages. And that's a different book. You'll have a chance to do that when HBO picks it up the well, series. We hope. That'd be nice. You produced the, the you self-published the book as opposed to going for a publisher. And with your names, I would think you would have had an relatively easy time getting a publisher. No, you did try that route. I didn't get rejected by every publisher in the world because I got sick of it. I One was the subject matter isn't popular right now. Well, not in movies, but it's, Arthur's always been popular in literature. And then the other one was, another one was, oh, oh, we want it, but not this quarter. And it had already been two years since Dorothy died. And I was determined this is going to go on. And you have to wait three months for anybody to read it for a good editor to read it. And I got frustrated and just decided to do it myself. 
And it's been a nightmare in some ways because you have to publicize and market your own work, which takes more time away from writing. That's been a nightmare. But I have enjoyed it. It's done quite well for a little self-published book. But her name, the trouble is, when you read D.C. Fontana, you want a Trek book. The Trekkies want a Trek book. And if it's not Spock, Young Spock, Old Spock, Pike, or uh, something in that universe written by D.C. Fontana, people aren't as interested. And this is King Arthur in the future. It's fantasy, it's science fiction, but it's not Trek. So her name might have been recognized, but because it's not Trek, her Vulcan's Glory, the title of a book she wrote in the 90s, is still on the New York Times bestseller list. Because it's a Trek book. And I have only written television. Let's face it, I've written a couple of short stories, but I've only written television. Believe it or not, they don't care. So it's as part of your producing the whole thing yourself, you've also produced an audio version. Mm. And for that, we bring in Stacey Lind, who is the narrator of the audio version. Stacey, how did... Well, let's start with who is Stacey Lind? (laughs) <laughs> I'm an audiobook narrator. I trained as an actor. I uh, live in Chicago. I have a secret past in, in branding and marketing and graphic design, but now I do audiobooks all the time. And how did you get involved in this one? Lynn put it up for auditions. There's a, a major company that has an exchange where you can, when if you're self-publishing, self-producing your audiobook, you can put it out there for auditions. And I auditioned. She had probably, I don't know, 75, 100 people audition for the book. I auditioned very bluntly because I saw the name DC Fontana and I thought, what? And I I thought actually thought it was probably a scam. Like that someone was just trying to like there you have to because it's a public exchange, you have to kind of look out for for people tricking you. But I did my due diligence and I was like, no, this is this is real. Lynn is real. I know DC is real and and so I auditioned and So Lynn, what made you decide on Stacy? How many auditioners did you get? I listened to sixty. Listen to 60 auditions, and I've got Brits wanting to do all the Brits. See, we have different levels of British accents, high, posh, and then lower class. Then we have Irish and Scottish, and we have a 10-year-old boy and a, two, three women. So the some of the guys would make the women too high, or they'd make the 10-year-old boy sound really like he's four, or they would not be able to switch from posh English to gutter English, <laughs> my fair lady English. She got it all. Elite assassins. How do you know? They're my kind of people. Arthur snorted derisively, his hand dropping casually to the hilt of his sword, and glanced around again. He paused, noticing that the hooded man in the rear had straightened watching the black-clad men edge their way through the mutant crowd. The hooded man rose slowly, putting his hands under his cloak, ready for what might happen. Alina's voice lifted over the rising murmur of the crowd. Destiny they will create. The time has come. The force of peace has won. As the assassins moved further into the room, Tiberius straightened and nudged Padraig. Oh, he breathed softly. Get your sword out, Paddy. I smell trouble. Padraig had already noticed the invaders as well and automatically reached for his sword. Yaustus craned his neck around and blinked nervously. Drian suddenly looked toward the center of the room. Aliena slung her lyret on her back, slipping gracefully off the table. Drian instantly pointed his right arm toward her. A throwing dart flashed from his sleeve. 
A waiter unexpectedly stood up in front of Aliena, and the dart buried itself in his back instead of her chest. The man collapsed, falling forward at Aliena's feet as she backed away, startled. People began to scream. They're off to the girl, Arthur shouted. The hooded man threw open his cloak, revealing a silver chainmail shirt and a utility belt of various weapons and pouches. In response, Drian flicked his left wrist, making a glowing light rod appear in his hand. Powerhead, Tiberius shouted to Padraig. If it touches anything, the head explodes like a bullet. Padraig nodded, raising his sword and moving forward. At the same moment, Arthur threw himself into the crowd, fighting his way toward Aliena. He dived over a table, colliding with her, pulling both of them to the floor. Drian pointed the powerhead at Aliena. The hooded man tossed a silver sphere into the air above his head. It paused a split second, then suddenly shot out mace-like points. The hooded man gestured to the orb, and it shot away toward Drian, who had no time to dodge. The orb slammed into the assassin's hand, and he shouted in pain. The powerhead hit the floor, and the resulting loud explosion scattered screaming mutants in all directions. Confusion ruled the inn. Tiberius, Yaustus, and Padraig plowed into the crowd, moving toward Arthur and Aliena. Arthur pulled the songsayer to her feet, but as he looked up, another assassin moved in front of them, a powerhead raised and poised to strike. Aliena brought up her arm in a fist-fighting position and made a slight motion. Instantly, a whirling laser knife activated from the leather bands at each wrist, throwing blinding electronic light around her fists. She raked the right spin laser across the assassin's chest, and he fell, screaming and spouting blood. Arthur quickly marveled at both the girl's fighting skill and yet another strange new weapon. Padraig rushed in and shouted to be heard over the crowd noise. Get her outside! Arthur shot a glance around. Where then? Aliena pushed between them, shouting, I know a place, follow me. She took off, shoving rudely through the crowd. Arthur and Padraig glanced at each other and then had to sprint to keep up with her. Another assassin stepped in her path. She brought up her fists and a red glare erupted in his face. He doubled over, screaming, as the laser's spin wheels gutted him. Arthur shot a glance at Padraig. We'll have to thank her for rescuing us like this. Without a hint of sarcasm, Padraig snapped, she's got my gratitude. Her men sounded like men. They didn't sound like high-pitched little girls. And the little boy sounded good. The women sounded different than each other, different pitches. And pronunciation was really good. I just kind of wanted to go with a woman. I tried the guys, and I didn't like the way they did the women. So, Stacy, when you do a book like this, do you read the book first, or do you just go into it cold? Absolutely. No, I definitely read the book first. I, I, it's not a universal truth that every audiobook narrator does that. I would consider it kind of a sin not to, um, in terms of just having all of the information you can possibly have to make good acting choices. You don't want to be surprised by something that happens in, in chapter 18 that you didn't anticipate in chapter two, and you've made a choice that doesn't make sense anymore, and you have to go back. So yes, definitely read the book first, and then make all the decisions about how these people sound, and, and where they come from, and what accent they have. And did you do any consulting with Lynn when you came up with the different voices for different people? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually have a little questionnaire that if I, I, audiobook narrators don't always have access to the author. 
So we don't always have the ability to have this kind of conversation. But I did have direct access to Lynn. So I had a questionnaire that I sent her and I'm like, tell me these things that I might not already be able to figure out or know about the characters. And then there was also a, a, a process whereby I sent her samples of the key people's voices so she could prove them in advance. Because what you don't want to do again is record hours and hours of material and then have her listen to the whole book and be like, I didn't like that character's voice. So you want to get that set up front and then then I can roll with it. Lynn, what kind of direction did you give Stacy? Just some of the emotional stuff that she usually got it anyway. But where I'm like, a, it was like a director of film, I guess, the way I talked to her. I, I wrote to her or talked. It was like, okay, here's what's happened to him. And here's where he's at at this point. This would be more, he's more emotional about this than he is about that. Or what I kind of would give her where the character, the character's headspace at the time of whatever's she's recording. But I didn't have to do that much. She she kind of got it. Stacy, this is, as I mentioned, a relatively short book. How long did it take you to do the narration? Not too long. So there's there's sort of, it is a relative, the audiobook I think ends up being five and a half hours, something like that. There's sort of a very broad rule of thumb for audiobooks that, and if you take the finished hours on audiobooks, in this case, five and a half, multiply that by six, that's the amount of production time that actually goes into making an audiobook. But only like a third of that is me talking into the microphone. And there are other things that happen, proofreading, editing, mastering, etc., to make the audiobook come to fruition. So yeah, so it you know, only took me a week or so to actually record. So when you do the narration for the book, do you add any effects or music? No, you would think it would be more common to do that than it is, partly because of the sort of history of audiobooks, where they came from and, and being sort of very much the value is very much on accurately representing the author's words as opposed to creating a soundscape. Then historically, zero effects in most audiobooks. That's changing. I just did a couple of books, especially in things like sci-fi, where there's a lot of reason perhaps to have someone's talking through a translation device, they have a kind of robotic effect sound to their voice, or someone speaking to you telepathically, they might have an effect on their voice. But we didn't do any of that for this. And also because there wasn't any real call for it. Everyone was speaking in voices that you could hear. And so I spoke in voices people could hear. But someplace in the book, you go something like he clears his throat. Well, she'd rather she doesn't clear her throat. In other words, she just reads that. Yeah, there's also a, sort of an aesthetic in audiobooks, I think, that everything that the actor does needs to happen on the line as part of the narration, right? So I can say, well, and I and then say he cleared her throat. But I can't say, well, she cleared her throat because I'm adding something to the text that isn't there. And that's not de rigueur. Right. Yeah. And nobody wants to listen to somebody clearing their throat. That is also true. <laughs> I, I was just going to do it, and I realized I'm just going to have to edit that out. So oh, no, we won't want that. It's very, very true. I, I won't That's do what that. the editor spends a lot of time getting rid of sounds like that. Stacey, when, when you, re you read the book, what did you take from it? I, I feel like it's very much a book that's written by two women who's wrote a lot of television. It's very <laughs> action-adventure. Yeah. It's yeah, it's very cinematic and, it's, and it zips through and there's a lot of like battle scenes and fight scenes and like group scenes. And sometimes in the sci-fi fantasy space, there's a lot of time spent on like world building and backstories and, and Lynn and DC just cut to the chase and we're like, we're in, we know who these people are, let's go. We're going to have a fight and see what happens. Yeah, Lynn, you were telling me that 
Dorothy had a different style of writing from yours, that, that there were things you wanted to do that she didn't. And she's very sparse in description, and you wanted to put in more. Did you feel that? And, and I felt I, I liked it for that reason, because I'm not big on description when I'm reading. I think it bogs down the plot, and it goes on and on. There was a famous writer years ago named Thomas Tryon, who was also an actor. He wrote some terrific books, but he was very flowery yeah. in his descriptions. And it was, I remember sitting and reading and going, cut to the chase, cut to the, come on. get." Uh, I, I don't need to know what the flowers smell like or, or I look love like. you. It, it, okay, here's the deal, Steve. There are two kinds of readers. There's people, uh, I sent this to a friend who is the, the other end of the spectrum. She wants to know what, what color somebody's dresses. I do describe what they're wearing sometimes and that kind of thing. But she wants to know what the flowers smell like. And it and she just went, well, I need more. I need more. I need more. I need more. And I said, well, Dorothy wrote a certain chunk of this book. I'm not going to tell anybody who wrote what because people tell me they can't tell. And I know where the cuts are. I, I do know. Except for, you know, who guessed it right is Walter Koenig, who was the classic Trek checkoff, who's a friend of both Dorothy and mine. He guessed it. And I went, oh, damn, how did you figure that? Well, I'm not going to tell you what he said, but he said he figured it out. And I went, dang, and you're the first one to do that. She had written a certain, certain things before she passed, and I had to match it because there's no way it's going to be like, okay, now here's my style in the middle of all this. And it was going to, it's similar dialogue wise, but yeah, I write personally a little more description, but I'm with the, I'm in the camp that you're in, Steve. I'd rather just, okay, what happened? Yeah, I've got it because you know why? I'm visual. I've got my own world going. When I see, get certain information, I go, okay. And then in my head, it looks like this or that, and he looks like that and says that, and this is what the background looks like in this post-apocalyptic world. And I start, I have an imagination that way. So I don't want somebody to wreck my vision by telling me, and then this was purple. No, it's green. In my head, it's green. There's two kinds of readers, and that's basically maybe three, but that's, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I will write a little more in the sequel I'm working on. I will write a little more description, a little more depth, more, a little more of what someone's thinking, just because that's me, but not like you're talking about. No, I can't stand that. Where's the, when, when does the story start again? It's also a very screenwriter thing, because as screenwriters, we are taught to not put in a lot of description because the director wants to have that say. Just give the reader enough to have a setting so that they know where we are, and you don't want to tell the actors what to do, because that's also the actor's purview and the director's. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to overdo with the, well, he says it this way, or she says it that way. Yeah, you have to flip a switch, though, when you're going to be a novelist. It really is. I get people, I've had people say, I love your battle scene. Man, I could see everything and all these creatures coming out and all this thing. Wow, that's great. And then other people said, I love your your flirty little love scene stuff. So they've loved both sides. But you have to be able to turn that switch off. See, Steve, I've been told you write like a director. That's what I've been told. So I'm used to putting in a little bit. But I draw the line at 900-page book. 
No, I can't. If I, if a book is 900, well, it's, it's different when we're holding it in our hand now as, a, as an electronic device. I'm always reading when I read a book on Kindle or something yeah. like that. I, I look down to the bottom to see what pages and what percentage I am in the book. And if I've read 200 pages and I'm still only 1% into the book, it's like, forget it. Move on to something else. I, I don't know that I have enough life left in me to, to read that book. So, Lynn, there were, there were some unanswered questions in the book. Is that what's fueling the sequel? Partially, yeah. Because people have asked, okay, wow, that we've got this people who become a couple by the end. What's going to happen? And what's going to happen with, I don't want to tell too much, but uh, what's going to happen in the future? What happens with this bunch of people? You have several relationships that have started in the book, and people wanted those relationships continue. They also wanted to know about sort of the land of the Fae, which we call the Enchantment which some creatures come out of to aid our heroes in their fight against these autocrats. And what, you know, what's, what's it like in there? Tell me more about that. And can we go back in? Can we go in there more? They want more is basically what it is. And they want to know who put Arthur to sleep, really, and why is this the time to wake him up? They had questions. All that's going to be answered. And there's a hell of a twist I figured out, too. So I was also trying to figure out when he was going to start singing Camelot. <laughs> no. We are almost out of time. So is there any question that I haven't asked that you would like to answer? Go, Stacy. Do you have anything? <laughs> yeah. I think more about, maybe a little more about, people want to know about self-publishing versus... And there are some small publishers that I didn't try, and I probably should have tried them. And I might, I might go that route and try some of them, because I've talked to a lot of other self-published authors since I wrote this. And they have small publishers who handle some of the publicity and marketing. And I feel that as a writer, you just want to write. And if you have to spend maybe, I don't know, 60% of your time marketing in some way or getting to know people to make them like the book or whatever, then you're not writing. And it gets to be very frustrating. I've talked to a lot of self-published writers that have the same very good writers. Maybe they were published in the past, didn't like their publisher, and switched to doing it themselves. But then they realize, oh, my God, this takes up 60% of my time. <laughs> well, I think we need to do a whole separate episode on self-publishing that I think we could talk to several self-publishers. But for now, we've got to end this episode. Thank you both so much for being here and much continued success with the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. My thanks to Lynn Barker and Stacy Lind for sharing their creative adventure on Futurist Rex. We're not exactly living in a post-apocalyptic world just yet, but it is a different world for creators of all kinds. No longer constrained by norms, there are multiple avenues for authors and other artists to get their work before the public. The trick is to help that public find that work. As for the non-creative world, we could really use King Arthur right about now. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios.